hey, before we dive in, uh, one thing really quickly. If you are someone who's still praying about and considering giving to our next initiative, this was an initiative we wrote out last year in hopes of raising funds to purchase a new property that we could move our, our church family into. As you can see from this room, we're pretty much out of space, and so uh, we're, we've addressed the problem. We've got a new property we're moving into in Mayish of next year, and so if you showed up to a vision meeting recently and uh, and your family again is praying about this, considering it, just a reminder: December fourth is the cutoff date to get this back to us. Sunday, December fourth. So make sure you go ahead and take care of this in the next couple of weeks. And if you have questions about it, feel free to ask. All right, awesome. Well, hey, let's grab our Bibles. Or if you have a device with an app, you can turn your Bibles on, and let's go to Acts chapter 6 together. Acts chapter 6. We only have two more weeks left in our Acts series before we shut it down for a little while. And uh, today we're getting into uh, an amazing, amazing story, a story about an amazing man. And so Acts 6 is where we're going to be. A few years ago, I happened to see a video that changed my approach to leadership. In the video, a guy named Henry Cloud described the difference between wise, foolish, and evil people. And he also addressed the need to lead each type of person differently. So first, he talked about wise people. And he said, to lead a wise person, you talk to them. You coach them, you correct them, you give them honest feedback. Because wise people love the truth. They see the truth as a gift. And whenever they receive it, they don't adjust it, they adjust to it. And listen, this is something the Bible affirms. It says in Proverbs 9, 8 through 9, reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be wiser still. Now secondly, Cloud said to lead a foolish person, you have to stop talking because foolish people aren't listening. And again, this is something that the Bible affirms. Here's what it says. Don't correct a fool lest you incur insults upon yourself. Some of us are shaking our heads. We're like, yeah, been there, right? Uh, Don't waste your breath on fools, for they will despise the wisest advice. You see, a fool is that person who hears the truth, but instead of adjusting to it, they attempt to adjust it. It's almost like they're allergic to it, you know? They always have excuses. Uh, It's never their fault. The problem is never in the room unless it's you. But the great news is there is hope for fools, All right, Jesus died for fools. And I think if we were all honest, we'd admit there's some foolishness in all of us. Uh, Fools can change, but not until the pain of refusing to change becomes greater than the pain of changing. And then finally, he says, when when it comes to evil people, you don't try to lead them at all. You avoid them, and when necessary, you protect yourself against them using lawyers, guns, and money. I thought that was... Pretty fantastic, right? Because look, they're going to want to sue you at times. You're going to have to call the cops and you're going to need some money put away to pay all your legal fees. Because evil people, all they want to do is inflict pain. They want to destroy you, which is why Paul writes in Titus 3.10, warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You cut them off. You don't return the phone calls. You don't return their text messages. You leave them alone, you don't respond, because if an evil person gets their way, everything you've built, both personally and professionally, will be torn to the ground. Well, listen, in our passage for today, what we find are people who fall both into the foolish and the evil categories. The truth comes to them, 
but instead of adjusting to it, they attempt to adjust it, and ultimately they destroy the man who delivers it. That guy's name was Stephen. If you were here a couple weeks ago, uh, you might remember seeing Stephen's name in the verses that we covered. This guy was a Hellenist, a Greek-speaking Jew born outside of Palestine who had moved into the city of Jerusalem and become a Jesus follower. He was also one of seven guys picked by the church to care for a group of widows who were being neglected. He was an incredible man. And although there are only two chapters in the Bible devoted to his story, he was a significant player in church history. You see, Stephen is often known as the first Christian martyr. He was the first guy in the New Testament church to die for his faith in Jesus Christ. Many Bible scholars also believe that he was the forerunner for the Apostle Paul. Because it was his death that ultimately propelled the church outside of Jerusalem so that the gospel could make its way out of that city and to the rest of the world. And so with that in mind, we're going to dive in and start talking about Stephen. All right, here we go. Acts 6. We're going to start reading in verse 8. Here's what the Bible says. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great signs and wonders among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now, we'll stop there and talk. All right, here's what we read. So Stephen, not only was he a humble servant giving his life to these widows, but he was a miracle worker. I mean, we see him in verse 8 performing great signs and wonders, doing things the apostles were doing, even though the guy wasn't an apostle. And what's so interesting is, while he was doing those signs and wonders, some of his own people, other Greek-speaking Jews, they came against him. Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, he refers to those guys as, as those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen. These were Jewish people who had either once been slaves or they descended from slaves, but by this point they were were free, right? They had maintained or or obtained freedom, and so they were all from all over the world as we read. Um, The Cyrenians, the Alexandrians, they were from North Africa. Those who came from Cilicia and Asia, they come from what we know as modern-day Turkey. And so the picture is we have these religious people, these zealous people who took their faith very seriously, by the way. I mean, think about it so seriously that they moved from all over the world to Jerusalem to practice their faith. So God is using Stephen mightily, and these religious people want to dispute and argue with him about it. That's frustrating, isn't it? I would also venture to say it's pretty typical. You see, whenever people are stuck in dead, lifeless religion, for some reason, they always want to criticize the work of God. Like, for example, I remember several years ago talking to some leaders of a pretty religious, legalistic church about a new church that had started down the road from them. And uh, this church, it was exploding, reaching tons of people, like people coming to faith in Jesus week after week. And I remember standing there, and those leaders started criticizing that church. And they said things like, you know, if they're reaching people like that, they must be doing something wrong. If people are coming to faith like that, they must not be preaching the real gospel. You know, people like that church so much, they're probably not talking about sin and hell. And I just remember standing there, and I was so confused. And all I could think was, what if they're doing things right? Like, what if they're so committed to the unadulterated gospel, preaching it both in grace and truth, that God's just showing up and doing things that only he can do? 
But again, that's the problem when people get stuck in dead, lifeless religion. They don't recognize the work of God, therefore they criticize it. And because they're so busy criticizing it, they miss out on being a part of it. This is why I want to caution our church against being too quick to criticize other churches and church leaders. Right? I will say that some churches and church leaders need to be criticized and scrutinized because they preach and practice things that go against this book. But what we can't do is criticize churches and leaders um, just for doing things differently than we do them. Does this make sense? Because if we're not careful, we could find ourselves criticizing the hand and blessing of God in the process. That's what's going on in the passage. God's hands on Stephen. God is blessing Stephen. God is using Stephen. And these people want to dispute and argue with him about it. Now, I love verse 10. It's fascinating to me. Look at it. I'll just reread it. It says, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So in other words, they lost. Are you with me? They lost. Now look at verse 11. I want to show you how they respond. It says, then they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against God and Moses. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and they seized him and they brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak against this holy place and the law, for we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now we're going to stop there, all right? Here's what's so interesting to me. These guys, poor losers, all right? Have you ever been around a poor loser? All right, in the neighborhood where I grew up, I remember a friend I had, the poorest loser I've ever been around. He was the type of kid that anytime he lost, like he would just take his ball and go home. And you wanted to lose your mind on him for it, which I did a few times. I'm just confessing. All right. Those are the kinds of losers we see in this passage. They come against Stephen. They lose. They get mad. And so they decide we're going to make him pay for winning. And they do four things according to the passage. Here they are. First, they instigated men. And so they start going out and they start gossiping, right? Have you ever played that that uh, game where you sit in a circle and you like whisper in somebody's ear, it's like the telephone game, you know, and you say one thing and by the time it gets all the way around to the end of the circle, the person says what was supposed to be said, but it's like nothing like what was first said. Ever play that? This is kind of the idea, right? These guys who disputed, they lost, so they go find men and they say, have you heard about Stephen, this guy Stephen? You hear about all the stuff he's saying about God and Moses? And so they run with it and they tell other people and they tell other people and it just kind of snowballs. Number two, they stirred up the people and leaders. This is significant because up until this time in the book of Acts, it was only the leaders who were coming against the Christians. But somehow these men who disputed with Stephen have now convinced the people to come against the Christians. So understand the persecution is no longer coming from just those at the top of the religious org chart. Now it's coming from all sides. Number three, they seized Stephen. This is the third time in the last three chapters we've been in that Christians have been arrested for their faith in Jesus. Right, the first time was in Acts 4 where Peter and John, they're arrested for healing a crippled man. It's crazy, right? But they're brought in before the Jewish high court, told to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, and then they're let go. The second time it happens, it's in Acts 5. Peter and, and the apostles are brought in this time before the Jewish high court because there were people far from God being loved, healed, delivered, and saved by Jesus, and the religious people wanted it to stop. And so they're brought in, threatened, stop preaching Jesus, 
but this time they're beaten before they're let go. Now, here's what's so interesting to me. Stephen, he's brought in before the Jewish high court, just like those guys. But he gets no second chances, no warnings. Nobody says to him, hey, bro, quit preaching all this Jesus stuff. They just kill the brother on the spot, put him to death. And we're going to talk in great detail about his death next week. So I want you to make sure you're here, all right? But finally, they set up false witnesses. They set up false witnesses. This is amazing to me. These guys go and recruit other people who are willing to stand before a religious high court and lie about things Stephen had said. And the first, things that, the first thing they, they say against him is, this is a guy who keeps speaking against the temple. Now, this was a big deal because speaking against the temple meant you were speaking against God because the temple had long served as God's dwelling place. And the accusation was, well, Stephen keeps saying this Jesus guy is going to destroy the temple. Now, look, Jesus did say something like that while he was here on the earth. But he wasn't talking about the physical temple in Jerusalem. Right? If you go back to John 2, verses 19 through 22, you find Jesus saying to a group of people he was talking to, destroy this temple. Kill me, put my body in the ground, and in three days I'll raise it up. He was talking about his resurrection. And the Bible even says for us that after his resurrection, his disciples thought back on that moment and they went, oh, that's what he was talking about, right? It all makes sense now. So look, these people are not only twisting Stephen's words, but they're twisting Jesus's words. And the same is true in regards to the second accusation. They say, this guy, Stephen, he keeps speaking against the law, which again was a huge deal. Because if you spoke against the law, it meant that you were speak, spoke, uh, speaking against Moses, who was this great prophet revered by the Jewish people, because it was through him that God gave the law, right? And so the accusation was, well, Stephen keeps saying Jesus is going to change all the customs and all the laws that Moses gave to us, which simply was not true. And all you got to do is read your Bibles to know it's not true. All right, Matthew five seventeen, Jesus shows up, and this is in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says... Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. So in other words, Jesus, he basically stood before the people, uh, and I could just almost imagine, I don't think this happened, but I can imagine it, him holding up the Old Testament scrolls in his hand and saying, don't think I've come to eliminate this. I haven't come to eradicate any of this. I've come to accomplish every bit of what it teaches and requires. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And look, look, he did it for us. Do you realize that 2,000 years ago, Jesus, who's God, God in the flesh, he showed up and he lived the life that God created us to live, but we've been unable to live. A life of sinless perfection. And this is so important because without that life, you and I wouldn't receive from Jesus righteousness and perfection. Here's the beautiful thing about the gospel. It not only teaches the cross and resurrection, forgiveness of sins and new life, it also teaches righteousness and holiness given by Jesus to sinners like us. Well, without his perfect life, we couldn't receive it, right? He lived a perfect life before he ever died so that when sinful people put our trust and faith in him, Jesus in his love for us, he'll, he just trades us. Like all our sin for all his holiness, which allows us to stand before the God of the universe as blameless, holy, righteous people, even though we're none of those things. How beautiful is that? Now look, go back to the passage, verse 15. I, I want to show you what happens next. 
It says, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And then chapter 7, verse 1, and the high priest said, are these things so? Now, I want you to get this picture in your mind, all right? On one side of the room is the Jewish high court, all these religious leaders of this day. On the other side of the room are all of Stephen's accusers, and they are making their case against him. This dude's a blasphemer. He keeps speaking against God and against Moses. He's attacking the temple. He's attacking the law. And after they make their case against him, like the whole room just turns their attention to Stephen. And here's Stephen in the middle of them all standing there. And his face, the Bible says, it's like the face of an angel. This dude is literally radiating the glory of God in that moment. Which would cause me to assume, if the story were to stop there, that they just all took notice and let Stephen go. Right? I mean, that would be the natural thing to do, wouldn't it? I mean, if a brother walked into this room today and all kinds of people were accusing him of speaking against God, but the glory of God lit him up like a light bulb, I would hope that we'd all look at him and go, maybe they're lying, you know? I don't know that they're telling the truth. But unfortunately, that's not the conclusion these guys came to here. Instead, the high priest, this is insane, the high priest looks at Stephen and he goes, Stephen, are you guilty or are you innocent? I mean, I know you look innocent, but, but you tell us. Are you guilty or are you innocent? Stephen, what do you say is true? Now listen, I, I want to give you something to write down. This is the big idea for the day. It's the big idea of the passage we just read. And we're going to spend the rest of our time unpacking it. All right, what do we learn from this? Here's what we learn. We learn that who you are matters, but what you say matters most. Who you are matters, but what you say matters most. Now, to help you understand what I mean in light of what we just read, we're going to break this statement down into two parts and just walk through it, all right? So we're going to start by talking about who you are matters. I love this. Who Stephen was mattered so much to Luke who wrote the book of Acts, that in the few verses we just read, he describes Stephen in great detail for us. And he tells us five things about the guy. All right, I'll put them up here for you. Here's what he says. First, he says that Stephen was a guy full of faith. So he was a man who was confident in God and all of his promises. He trusted in the Lord. Number two, he was full of the Spirit. So Stephen was a man who every day he got out of bed and he walked in dependency upon and in surrender to the Holy Spirit. And as a result, his life would have looked a lot like the life of Jesus. Number three, he was full of grace. This was a guy who who was loving. He was kind. He was compassionate. He treated people like he wanted to be treated even when they didn't deserve to be treated so. And you'll get a real clear picture of what I mean next week. So make sure you're here, all right? Number four, he was full of power. And this is reflected in the fact that he was a miracle worker. The Holy Spirit gave him supernatural power and used him for supernatural purposes. And then finally, he was full of wisdom. So he was clever, he was intelligent, he was winsome, and not just in a human way, but in a godly way. Now listen, with this in front of us, I want to ask us all a question. Very important question, okay? If someone were writing an account of your life, what would they say you're full of? Dangerous question, right? But it's an important one, so I'm going to ask it anyway. And do me a favor, uh, just answer that question for you, okay? Now, some of you are probably thinking about your neighbor and going, I don't know about me, but I know what he's full of. Look, (laughs) don't go there, all right? 
just worry about yourself. If someone were writing an account of your life, how would they describe you? Would they say that you're full of these things or would the description be something different? And look, I'll throw a second list on the screen to help you answer that question. Let's look at this. Would people say that you're full of faith or that you're full of fear? That when it comes to tomorrow, you're constantly worried and and you're frustrated and you're anxious because you don't really trust in God and all of his promises. Would people say that you're full of the spirit or you're full of self? That you trust in you and you depend on you more than you depend on him? Would people say that you're full of grace or full of judgment? That inside of you is not kindness and love and compassion, but anger, bitterness, unforgiveness. That you treat people very, very poorly. Would people say that you're full of power or full of weakness? That all kinds of sins and all kinds of struggles and all kinds of worries and doubts have power and dominion over you. And then finally, would people say you're full of wisdom or full of ignorance? That you take little to no initiative to grow in your understanding of God and the life he wants for you. And even when you know the right decisions to make, oftentimes you still make the wrong ones. How would people describe you? Here's why I ask and here's why I say that who you are matters. And if you're taking notes, you can write it down. Who you are, who you are reveals whose you are. Who you are reveals whose you are. Listen, if that first list that describes Stephen isn't true of you, all it reveals about you is this, that you are not completely surrendered to the Lord. There are areas of your life that don't completely belong to him just yet. And please hear me, all right, because I need you to get this. The way to correct that is not by leaving today and just resolving to work hard, to be determined, I'm going to change myself. Like if you do that, like if, you're, if your mindset is I'm going to leave and I'm going to make myself more kind, more gracious, uh, full of more power, more, more uh, wisdom, if that's your go-to, like I'm sorry, you might get it right for about a week, but that you're, you're going to be right back to where you started. You see, you cannot give yourself more of those things. Only God can. And so the way to correct it is this. You come before the Lord each and every day as a broken, sinful, needy person. And you confess to him over and over and over again your dependency upon him. God, I want those things that were true of Stephen to be true of me. And so what I need you to do is I need you to invade all these areas of my life that don't belong to you just yet so that I'm changed and transformed and my life starts to reflect that I am actually yours. Look, that type of submission, please hear me, that type of submission is so important to the mission God has given us as his church. I mean, think about it. How could we ever expect people out there to believe what we believe about Jesus if our lives don't reflect that we're actually his? Well, the answer is we can't, right? And look, I'm not preaching perfection here. I mean, I've said this many times from this platform. None of us in this room will ever be perfect this side of eternity including this guy on the platform. I am far from perfect, my friends, all right? None of us will be perfect. What I'm preaching is progress. That's the Christian life, not perfection, progress. Each and every day, you and I have an opportunity to make progress in our relationship with Christ, to take just one more step, one more step, one more step, so that by our dependency upon God, the Holy Spirit can change us more into the likeness of Christ. And as he changes us, our lives start to bear the glory of God in an undeniable way. And the world out there starts to take notice that we're actually his. Church, are you with me? 
Is this making sense? Who you are matters. Who you are matters. Now, let's take it back to that second phrase, all right? Who you are matters, but what you say matters most. What you say matters most. Now, what I'm talking about here when I say this is the truth. Who you are matters, but the truth you and I have been called to proclaim as followers of Jesus Christ, it matters most. And look at me, it matters most to people who need it, and it matters most to people who hate it. But it matters to them in different ways, all right? And I'll do my best to explain. We'll start with those people who need it. All right, in John chapter 8, Jesus is speaking to a group of Jews who had believed in him. And here's what he says. Verses 31 and 32, he says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth. And the truth, what will it do? It'll set you free. Man, I love this. I love this. Here are the implications of Jesus' words. All right, If you walked into this room today and you're stuck in something, if you walked in and, and you're in bondage to something, fear, doubt, worry, hopelessness, defeat, unforgiveness, bitterness, whatever it may be, Here's the implication, all right? You either don't know the truth or you're not walking in the truth that you know. Because again, according to Jesus, the truth, it what? Sets people free. So in other words, when I know what's true about Jesus and when I walk in the truth that he offers me, that truth will lead me out of bondage and into freedom. It will get me unstuck from whatever I'm stuck in. And this, my friends, look, this is why the truth matters so much. Like, I know we live in a culture today that says differently. Like, our culture preaches this whole idea that, that the truth, it really doesn't matter. It's relative. It's subjective. The truth is whatever you want it to be. You should decide what's true for you, and I should decide what's true for me. And at the end of the day, we should just celebrate each other's truth, right? Whoever you want to be and whatever you want to do that makes you happy, we should all give each other the thumbs up. Now, can I tell you the problem with this? Look, truth is not relative. Truth is not subjective. Truth is what God says it is. And I feel like that deserved a bigger amen right there. Y'all with me? Truth is what God says it is. Like the arrogance of our culture today, it dumbfounds me at times. You know, we show up on this earth and, you know, if we're lucky, we get to put in 80, 90 years. And somehow we show up and we think we're smarter than God. That we've got the truth figured out. And what God says, it's old and it's outdated and it's silly. And can I just tell you, we don't get to determine the truth. God has already determined the truth. And until you and I as people know that truth and walk in that truth, we will never know true joy or true freedom. Now that raises a question. How do people know the truth? How do people know the truth? What's well, simple. Paul answers that question for us in Romans 10, 17. He says, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. All right, so in other words, for people to know the truth, they have to what? They have to hear the truth. Well, if people are going to hear the truth, what has to happen? Somebody has to speak or, or say the truth, all right? This is so critical, all right? If you're taking notes, write something down that captures this. I need you to know that who you are will never set a person free. You with me? Your godly character will never lead anyone out of bondage and into freedom. Who you are matters immensely because people need to see that Christianity actually works. But what you say matters most because it's the truth that you speak about Christ that leads people into freedom. 
This is why we can't ever believe that false idea that, that we can somehow preach the gospel without using words. You know, some of us, we've got that, like, quote on a cute little coffee cup somewhere. Preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. Throw it away, all right? I know it sounds good, but it's just unbiblical. It's not true. The gospel and the truth always requires you to use words. Always. Faith doesn't come by seeing. Faith comes by what? By hearing. And if people are going to hear the truth, what do you have to do? You have to speak it. You see, what you say, what you say matters most. Now, listen, I want to address something before we move on. I know some of you, you might be sitting here and you're wondering, well, what if that person I keep saying the truth to doesn't really think it matters most? Because some of you are there, aren't you? Like you walked in today and you've been speaking the truth to that friend or that family member. They are stuck in bondage and they desperately need freedom, but they're kind of like that foolish person we talked about earlier. You're speaking, they're not listening. They, keep want to, they, they, they want to keep adjusting the truth, if you will, and say, well, what do I do? Here's what you do. Let me, let me try to help you if I can. Um, number one, keep praying for them. Don't you dare give up on that person. God can change anybody's life, and I hope you believe that. And so I would just encourage you every day, even when you don't want to, even when you feel like you're wasting your breath and you're wasting your time, you get on your knees and you ask the God of heaven, would you invade their life and do something in them that only you can do? Don't give up. And then secondly, you keep living the truth in front of them so that they can see the reality of who Christ is in you. And then finally, whenever they invite you to share the truth, well, you speak up and you share the truth. But here's what you remember the whole time. And this is so key, all right? Don't miss it. You have to remember that you're just the messenger. That's it. All God has called you to do is to deliver the mail, if you will. And so you have to take unnecessary pressure off yourself as if your job is to somehow change that person's life. That's not your job. That's God's job. Your only job is to speak the truth in love, in grace, and in kindness. And here's what's so hard. But at the end of the day, it's that person's responsibility to respond to what's true. Who you are matters. What you say matters most. Now, let's talk about the other side of that, all right? I said earlier that that what we say matters most to people who need to hear the truth. But it also matters most to people who hate the truth. And this is the reality of what we see in Stephen's story. I mean, think about it again. Here was a guy, he's godly beyond belief. God's using him to perform miracles. He's full of the spirit, full of wisdom, full of grace. The glory of God is written on this man's face. Yet the religious leaders of his day looked past it all and they killed him. You see, they killed him not because of who he was. They killed him, why? Because of what he said. See, who he was mattered, but what he said mattered most. Do you realize the same was true about Jesus? When Jesus was here 2,000 years ago, again, he was God in the flesh. There's never been anyone who has embodied more perfectly grace, faith, power, wisdom, the Spirit. Everywhere Jesus went, he radiated the glory of God, and he spoke truth that set people free. But it was that same truth that caused violent men to put him on a cross. Who Jesus was mattered, but what he said mattered most. You see, here's the takeaway. There are people in this world who will always hate the truth. And for those people, what you say will always matter more than who you are. Are you with me? 
You can be godly, you can be loving, you can be kind, you can be compassionate. You can be that person who who looks a lot like Stephen looked here in Acts 6. The glory of God can radiate from you, but the moment you open your mouth and you speak the truth, people who hate the truth will hate you for it. And so the decision we have to make every day as followers of Jesus is simple. Will we remain silent and refuse to speak the truth in hopes of avoiding that kind of pain and suffering? Or will we, regardless of what pain and suffering comes our way, will we open our mouths and speak the truth in hopes of seeing people set free? Man, I pray that we're a church who always chooses the latter, remembering, remembering that who we are matters, but what we say matters most. Listen, I'm just going to invite us in this moment to bow our heads and to close our eyes. We're going to take some time to respond right now, and we're going to do that by taking communion. And so I would just encourage you to go ahead and just to start getting yourself ready for that. Um, I thought it'd be very fitting to respond in that way today. Since through communion, we fix our eyes on Jesus and we remember his suffering and we remember his sacrifice. And you see, it's ultimately the suffering of Jesus that gives us courage to suffer for the sake of others if and when necessary. And so we have tables set up all throughout the room. We have a few tables in the back. We have a couple tables up front. And as we respond in a moment, I want to encourage you just to go to whatever table is closest to you. Just remember as you partake, that that bread that's there, it's there to represent the body of Jesus Christ that was broken for your sins. The juice that's there, it's there representing the blood of Jesus Christ that was spilled to atone for and to pay for your sins. So again, right now, I, I want to encourage you to continue preparing your hearts. You know, as the Bible teaches, we always want to do this in a worthy manner, in a manner that truly honors the sacrifice of Jesus. So right now, confess any sin in your life that needs to be confessed. Ask God to, to work in you and to ready you for this moment so that you can take it seriously. And let me just speak to you if you came in today and you don't know Jesus like maybe as you listened to me speak earlier you could identify with that person who just feels stuck you know you walked in and then you're that person you're stuck in hopelessness in defeat in despair and fear and worry and you've tried to fix your own life but it hasn't worked and maybe one of the reasons you're here today is because you're hoping to find something that works I just want to tell you, Jesus works. The God of the universe gave his life on a cross so that you could be set free. And if you need the life and the freedom that Jesus offers you today, I would encourage you right now in your seat, why don't you in prayer just say something like this to God. Say to God, God, I need you. I need you. i got to confess that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. God, I need freedom. And I believe Jesus is the one who can give it to me. And so right now, I put my faith in him. I trust in his death on the cross for my sins. I trust in his resurrection from the dead for me. God, would you forgive me? Would you save me? Give me the new and eternal life that you promised to give to any who put their faith in Jesus. God, I say yes to him. Look, as our prayer team comes forward, And they get in their places. 
with head still bowed and eyes still closed. If you just prayed that with me or you prayed something like it, I want to ask you to do me a quick favor, if you will. Would you just acknowledge that you made that decision by just lifting a hand? James, that's me, man. I put my faith in Jesus. Just keep your hands up. Our prayer team is going to come to you, and they're going to put a resource in your hand. And as soon as you receive it, you can put your hand back down. I'm going to give you another minute. James, that's me. Said yes to Jesus today. Just throw your hand up where we can see it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I want to ask all of us, if we will, just to stand quietly to our feet. Just go ahead and stand quietly. If you need to finish getting your heart and your mind ready for this moment, you do that. Kyle and Jill are going to come lead us. And as they lead, you can feel free to just exit your seat and to come and partake at any moment when you're ready. All right, guys, come and lead us.